Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Coming up on this week's show, how the Game Boy was nearly turned into a PDA. A lost Simpsons Dreamcast game has been revealed. We get the inside story of Sinclair with former MD Nigel Searle. This week's show is brought to you by Bitmap Books. Keep listening for details for their incredible new Game Boy book. Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 256. Your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. Me, Ravi Abbott. And me, Joe Fox. And welcome to our first show of 2021. The only way is up. <laughs> I feel like we should set fireworks off or something now. In, in the I know. We, if we should use our like roadcasters just to do like the, the applause and stuff like that. It's like I'll, yes. I'll mix them in. I'll mix them in in post. It's fine. <laughs> Go for it. Oh man, what a crazy year! It, it's 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 good for it to be. It's a good feeling knowing it's 2021 now. A really good feeling just knowing that that's behind us. Um, but you know what? It's 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 been a good year for us for the podcast and that's yeah. thanks to everybody um but really ravi is right the only way is up we've got a wicked guest this week haven't we ravi we have yeah. but before we mention that i just want to say something that i'm, oh, I'm okay. not sure if you guys realize this is actually our fifth birthday as well this show oh is it oh my god yeah. really We're five, five years old five years old we oh, started um yeah first of january 2016 was our first show so um yeah five years that we've been doing this podcast now Oh, wow. I did not know that. <laughs> it feels like a lifetime. <laughs> it doesn't feel like five years. <laughs> but like you said, we have got an incredible guest to uh, kick off our first show of 2021. Now, today we're going to be talking about Sinclair. Yeah, we don't really talk about Sinclair that much. We've talked about the ZX Spectrum Next, which is kind of the next new revised version of um, the Sinclair Spectrum. But we've not really looked at the company or, or kind of got into there. And it's and it's been quite hard because um, you know, Clive Sinclair is it's quite hard to get to. So um I'd say we've got the closest to Clive we possibly could. Yeah, now today's guest it was essentially Clive's right hand man during the heyday of Sinclair. I mean, he joined when, you know, before the ZX eighty was released, when they were still doing stuff like, you know, calculators he initially started working on. And um, then obviously we have products like the Black Watch. Um our guest today actually went over to America and you know, obviously there was a Timex deal that was done out there as well. He came back to the UK, helped to launch the Spectrum, and then the follow-up to the Spectrum, the Sinclair QL. There is actually a video of our guest this week launching the QL on YouTube that I'll put in this week's show notes. We are going to be joined by Nigel Searle. And I think like you said, Ravi, it's um, we've criminally underrepresented Sinclair really on this podcast over the last five years. We'd love to do more episodes about it, but actually getting kind of inside there. Like you said, Clive, I mean, he's famously now, he doesn't really do interviews. You know, he doesn't do email. I don't think he even has a mobile phone, I heard. You know, if you want to get in touch with him, you've got to go via snail mail, which we have got his address, so maybe one day. But Nigel, he actually took the time to talk to us from America. Um, We recorded this just before Christmas, and I think this was one of my favourite interviews we've done in a long time. It's really interesting. This is an amazing interview. You know, some of the stories in there were fantastic. You hear about the like, 
you know, legendary fights between Clive Sinclair and Chris Curry in pubs in Cambridge and stuff. We get the inside story on that. And lots of kind of information about Clive's personality as well from someone who was really close to him. And, you know, he was a legendary guy. He um, actually got knighted at the time and he kind of represented British ingenuity and inventiveness uh, back then. Yeah, and I think it was interesting because Clive, obviously, I mean, we, we kind of go into this with Nigel. A lot of the the Cambridge kind of computer scene then came out of Cambridge University. So it was a bit of a kind of, you know, old boys club of Cambridge graduates in many ways. But Clive actually chose not to go to university. So that was one big difference that he kind of had from the rest of the uh, you know, kind of the, the crew in Cambridge who were working on computers at the time. Um, and also, I think one thing that always frustrated Clive, and we'll hear more about this, is the fact that he really wanted his products to be taken seriously. He hated the fact that the the Spectrum was mainly used as a video game system. Yeah, it's a really interesting interview, and I think you're all going to love this to start off 2021. Yes, and Nigel Searle is going to be our special guest as we take you behind the scenes of the infamous Sinclair. He'll be coming up on the show in around 20 minutes from now. Now, let's just get straight into the stories. I mean, we are obviously a couple of weeks that we haven't done the news for now, so we've got a bit of catching up to do. And there has been some great stories come out over the holidays in the last couple of weeks. This one is really interesting. It turns out that actually Nintendo were planning on turning the Game Boy into a PDA. Yeah, so I, I've i never heard of this. So this was the, the Work Boy. I've only kind of glanced over it and seen it kind of knocking about on the internet a little bit. But essentially this was, it looks like a mini keyboard. It looks like a 3D printed keyboard to me, but a mini <laughs> keyboard that used the link cable to connect to the Game Boy and essentially it ran like 12 apps, which included like an address book, a phone book, a calendar, like an appointment, like a bit of a diary on there as well. And it was showing off, it was shown off in 1992 at the, um, is it CBS? Is it yeah. CBS Fair? CES Fair, sorry. Um, and, you know, it, it got some coverage and stuff in magazines and stuff, but then it just, it just disappeared after that. But it's been re, it's kind of like re-emerged and, this actually, it's been confirmed that there is actually two prototypes of this. Uh, one in, you know, the vaults of Nintendo and then one that somebody actually has, which I know Ravi knows a little bit more about. Yeah, so this is a video gaming historian, Liam Robinson, and he kind of shared with our friends at Did You Know Gaming um, that he wanted to find the creators of the Workboy. So he he tracked them down, he got one of the prototypes uh, and, it, and, and it was working, but there was no software there. And the problem was this ROM wasn't available. But recently we had the Nintendo Giga Leak earlier this uh, year. Okay. And he found the software on the Giga Leak, <laughs> burnt it to a blank ROM, and actually got it working so we can see it in action. Now, the mad thing about this piece of hardware was this I love this part of the story. Um, it was discontinued because there was a large explosion in a factory in Japan that was actually producing the chips for the DRAM. So the price for the DRAM like skyrocketed because the factory with all the stuff had got blown up. So wow. they got a limited supply and that basically meant that they wouldn't make this accessory for the um, Game Boy. So that's why only two of them exist. 
Oh, wow. Okay. And what I love about it as well, I mean, that, that that's probably actually more interesting, but the guy who had it was a guy called Frank Ballows, um, who I think worked on it in the 90s. But apparently when they tracked him down, he was like, oh yeah, I have the work boy, but he didn't have a Game Boy. So he had the yeah. work boy, but didn't have a Game Boy. <laughs> so the guy they got it off just had it like in his garage or something, just like, just sat there. Well, it, it kind of makes sense because it's like the Game Boy would be a default device that loads of people would have in Japan and stuff. And if you could just plug a keyboard in and turn it into a little work machine, it's like you've already got the screen there. You've already got like the batteries in there. It's a little portable thing. It's it's kind of a smart idea. I get it. Yeah, I guess so. I wonder, it doesn't say anything, but I wonder if there was like a cartridge or something, I guess you would have needed. Yeah, yeah, that was yeah, it. So was he, ROM, he, yeah. he he found the ROM and he put it onto a blank cartridge, which oh, then cool. made so that it, cartridge, yeah. Oh, okay. So it would have come out probably with the link cable and the cartridge. Yeah. And then yeah. you would have kind of taken that around with you and get it out of your bag, put it in, and then that's like your electronic PDA. That's if it cool, wasn't actually. for the explosion, it would have, yeah. It would have. <laughs> Japan might be still using them. <laughs> you never know. That's awesome. Well, I mean, it is interesting as well that apparently when it got cancelled, I mean, because the price of the RAM went up, and they're saying that actually it would have retailed for, they reckon, the cheapest they could have sold it for would have been around $89.99 US dollars, which would have been more than the Game Boy that at the time was retailing for around $79. Uh, but apparently it kind of took the work that he'd done on this uh, to Nokia, and that was kind of the basis for the Nokia 9000 series that oh, came okay. out in the late 90s. They're kind of, you know, their early PDAs. But I think, you know, you look back then, 1992, when they were working on this initially. I mean, that was the same time that, you know, we've done episodes about like uh, Magic Leap and when um, Apple released the Newton, you know, that was around that time as well. So PDAs were kind of hot business around that time. So I can kind of see why it would have actually made a decent device for doing that. And maybe even with games, you know, inputting the names on Game Boys could really be annoying. So like, you know, maybe having a keyboard, you could have just quickly typed it in and <laughs> it could have been actually usable with games. Who knows? We could have got Typing of the Dead on the Game Boy. <laughs> <laughs> well, apparently he went back to Nintendo and he was working on another one, a revamped version of the Work Boy for the Game Boy Advance that would have um, allowed email, web browsing, and word processing, but apparently uh, that got cancelled before it got released as well. So uh, it wasn't meant to be, I'm afraid. Oh, that would have been cool to, you know, being there at work and you'd, you'd have a valid excuse for getting your Game Boy out. Look, I'm working, <laughs> boss, honestly. I'm working just on Tetris. <laughs> <laughs> I'm wondering now if someone's going to see that and be like, uh, okay, Kickstarter, let's get these made. Yeah, definitely. I think I think somebody needs to make one. Uh, like I say, it looks like a 3D printed one anyway. So I think it definitely needs to happen. <laughs> <laughs> a work switch. Yeah, or get and get Doom running on it, so and you can use the keyboard with Doom. <laughs> the only way to play Doom. Well, actually, if you do want to play the original Doom, um, kind of nicely linking into our next story. Ooh, so I've been playing away. around with. Um, yeah, look at that. Like we don't we don't throw the show together. <laughs> um, DOSBox has been simplified now. Actually, this is quite well timed for me because I did a video. Um, about two weeks ago, talking about my favourite Christmas video games, and I did like my kind of top ten, and I actually set DOSBox up to run a few classic PC DOS games, like you know Duke Nukem 3D, Nuclear Winter, um, and I forgot, you know, even though DOSBox is a lot easier than actual hardware, it is still a bit of a headache to kind of get it configured for different configurations and everything. But if I'd have just waited a week or two, they've actually released a new version now called DOSBox Pure, which really kind of looks like, it reminds me a bit of MAME, the way they've got this running. Yeah, it looks really good, actually, because, um, 
you're right. DOS box is a nightmare to set up sometimes. And especially if you don't remember DOS. <laughs> so mm. you need to have a bit of DOS knowledge to actually install the files, then get them running. But um, DOSBox Pure makes it really simple. You can just run the zip, which is absolutely amazing. So you don't even need to extract the zip. Uh, and then you can uh, save the games into separate save files, which is really smart. But also it has something which is absolutely been needed on this, which is automatic detection uh, for custom gamepads, keyboard mapping as well. So I think that's really good having stuff auto detected. So you, imagine if you've got one of those old DOS kind of huge joysticks that was used for um, like flight simulators and stuff. Maybe that would straight away detect, just load up the zip, double click on it. I think this will open it up to a lot more users. And also it's got built in MIDI, uh, a disk swapping menu as well. And, uh, you know, you can control the lists now of the games with a gamepad. So this is going to make integration on the Raspberry Pi, on all these different formats, a lot easier. Yeah, because I think when you press the help button on DOSBox, I mean, you get like, you know, about 20 pages coming up and you're like, oh, what did I see there? Okay, right, I need to right, I need to mount that as a hard disk and I mount that one as a floppy drive and I insert an image here, then I've got to run the installer and what kind of sound card am I emulating? This just kind of takes all the hassle out of it and lets you just play the games, which I think, like you said, for a lot of people who maybe haven't used DOS in like 25 years and that knowledge is not front of mind, it makes it a lot simpler. What, what I love as well, they've actually implemented um, rewinding games in here as well, which after playing Jazz Jackrabbit for my Christmas video and forget how hard it was, that feature is a big, big bonus, I think. Yeah, it's it's, it's lovely. And I think, like I said, it's going to open it up to people because everybody kind of assumes, oh, people playing DOSBox are, are old DOS users. There may be some people that have never used DOS in their life and just want to have a go on it. And uh, this is just simple and easy to use that said i do like the um, i mean archive.org i've got a lot of them you can play in the browser now and a lot of them run yeah, really well yeah. in there actually yeah so that that was quite handy but I, I think you know again just just a way of getting these old games into people's hands and making it a lot simpler always a good thing um so the initial release of that is out now of course i'll link it up and everything else we talk about in our show notes at the retrohour.com now your jaw dropped when you saw this next one joe it's a Simpsons game that was meant to be coming out on the Dreamcast but got cancelled. But how impressive does this look for the Dreamcast? This, like, I saw this, I think it's probably, it's not old news. It's probably about a week or two now, but I really wanted to cover this one. So uh, a channel called the Dreamcastic Channel uh, released this on the 20th of December. So like I say, a little while ago now. But yeah, Bug Squad was a Simpsons game that never came out for the Dreamcast, which was made in the year 2000. And I don't know if it's just me or if it's just like the cel-shaded graphics, but this game looks amazing for 2000. Like it, it I mean, maybe it's just because it's the Simpsons and it's like, oh yes, it's easy animation or something. But it looks like, you know, like frame for frame, scene for scene. It just looks like the Simpsons to me. It looks amazing. Um, and the graphics for me like look just as good as like the Simpsons hit and run and stuff. Like it looks amazing. I'm like hashtag bring out bug squad for the Dreamcast. I am <laughs> like, I really want to see this, but yeah. Um, I don't know why this didn't come out or anything. Like maybe it was just a tech demo or something like that, but yeah, man, it, it looks awesome. It's just, it's just the, the ground floor of the Simpsons at the moment, but like you see the characters walking around and stuff. 
bit of a weird concept that you're you're like a little cockroach just running around so i don't really know where the game was going with that because it's not got any sound or anything like that nor and, and there's no music and all you can do is run around but it it's it definitely looks interesting and you said something really cool about it as well ravi yeah um do, do you remember i think it was a uh, toy squad or toy soldiers or something where you yeah. were from that perspective on the dreamcast yeah. as well but it didn't look as good as this i, I no. love the shading on it and like, I think I was listening to a podcast. I'm sorry, I can't remember which one, but they was mentioning about the developer and they were saying the developer did actually go on and use this engine as a part of creating The Simpsons because, you know, The Simpsons went from hand-drawn to digital. Yeah. And, like, the quality of this, especially on the Dreamcast as well, it's just, it's just running so well. And this is, like, incomplete. Um, they actually went on and used this um, as, as part of that kind of creating yeah, Simpsons Rich, episodes. Rich Evans and Jamie Grant. And yeah, I'm reading it here in the article. Yeah, they went on to work on The Simpsons. They pitched it to The Simpsons and they went on to help out with it, with, you know, moving it from the hand-drawn to the computer-generated. And I can see that because of, I remember when it kind of changed around about where the film, when the film came out around like 2007. I do remember that kind of transition and it does look similar to that. It's, it's really well done, yeah. I think it looks really good, but I'm, I, I wonder if, because the idea of this is, I mean, Bug Squad, you play as a bug. And at the moment, I mean, the demo kind of shows you running around the kitchen and yeah. the living room of the Simpsons house. And weirdly, I mean, Homer's actually the enemy because <laughs> he's walking right. around back and forth through different rooms and you've got to avoid getting squashed by him. So I just wonder if that was a reason the game didn't make it because it's kind of like, you're not playing as the Simpsons characters and actually having them as kind of the, the enemy in the game is a little bit bizarre. I wonder if that was the reason that it didn't get commissioned just because of the weird concept of the story rather yeah. than how it looks. Yeah. Homer, Homer's ass descending on you. <laughs> <laughs> now there's my nightmare for tonight. <laughs> it is. It is just a weird concept, isn't it? But there's a lot of attention to detail. Here, like the TV's actually got itchy and scratchy playing on it and stuff mm. like that. Like, I mean, the frame rate drops every now and then. I don't know if that's just the video and stuff, but, oh, man, like, they, um, I, I love the look of this game. I mean, I like the Simpsons games. I know they get a lot of, like, you know, I think this looks cool, man. This looks cool. If we could get get a full game of this, man, I definitely want to get my I, I was that. thinking that. When was the last Simpsons game? I remember, was it, like, tapped out or something? That uh, There was the yeah, moment. It must have game. been tapped out, yeah. But yeah. I think the, Simpson, the Simpsons game, which came out on, on PS2 and Xbox 360, like 2007 that came out, I think. Yeah. that I mean, that one's meant to be, a, I mean, it is a good one. I had it and I still do have it. And that's meant to be like the best Simpsons game. And I think the graphics look similar to that. And everybody wants Simpsons Hit and Run to come back. I mean, I say they look similar. In my head, they look similar. If you, I guess if you put them side by side, they probably don't look the same. But, you know, that's, I mean, I love the Dreamcast. I always think the Dreamcast has got really, really good graphics for what it was. Um, but yeah, man, I, I think it looks awesome. Because I've been watching, actually, um, I've kind of got, you know, the Simpsons on series link. So, you know, every time I look at my, look at my box, it's like, you know, about a thousand episodes just waiting on there. Um, and it's kind of look at the draw when I land on. Sometimes you get a, like a, a mid to late 90s one and they're hilarious. When you get the ones from like about 10 years ago, I generally skip them for a while. But actually, I've been watching some of the more recent ones again. And I don't know whether it's just that there was kind of a bit of a Simpsons overload at one stage and I got a bit fed up of it, but actually I found myself having a bit of a giggle at the more recent episodes again. So I kind of feel like, you know, it's maybe time for the Simpsons to come back a bit. I mean, I love the Simpsons arcade game 
That was my favourite Simpsons game. But I think, you know, the, in the way that South Park has had those two recent games that have been like, you know, looked as good as the animation and the quality of the TV show, it would be great to get like a, a new Simpsons kind of storyline based game released on the modern gen systems. What was the one on the PC where you were walking around Springfield? Virtual, Virtual Springfield. Springfield. Virtual yeah, Springfield. that yeah, was yeah. quite cool. Yeah, something yeah. like that. Yeah. Didn't you make your own yeah. episode in it or something like that? I think so, I, then, but there might have been a video editor in there where you could yeah. create uh, sketches. Yeah, I think that was one of those ones, like, I always wanted it but never got to play it kind of thing. Well, if you set it up in DOSBox, use yeah, DOSBox PR, okay. there you go. Very Josh. true, very true, I could do. <laughs> so give us a new Simpsons game, come on, it's about time, I think. Now, maybe you've got a Raspberry Pi kicking around and you're looking at it thinking, I wish I could play movies from a floppy disk. <laughs> well, your, your prayers have been answered. I hope they've got Shrek. You know, I'm really, really hoping <laughs> to get Shrek on floppy disk. Like, I've got it on DVD. I had it on video. You know, I definitely need to get on floppy disk. This this is kind of mental. Like, we've looked at these before. So we saw the Spotify and floppy disk, and that was a bit of a cheat. So the way that Spotify and floppy disk worked was they put the floppy disk in, and it actually, like, found the Spotify thing and then connected to it. You know, it wasn't actually on the disk Whereas this is absolutely insane. So they've managed to compress down to 1.37 megabytes uh, using a Raspberry Pi based codec uh, for the X265 codec. And um, what they've done is they've got the whole of Shrek in 120 by 96 resolution running at four frames per second. My prayers have been answered. <laughs> On a floppy disk. So, you know, it's amazing. You can actually run it. It's a mad little uh, proof of concept kind of thing. You know, the quality of it reminds me of a little bit like um, like a mega CD kind of animation. That was kind of that resolution. But I think it's it's a length of this, isn't it? The, the fact that they managed to get a full movie compressed onto a single floppy. That's the most impressive bit of this. Yeah, it's, it's, it's mental. And like, think you can kind of make it out and you can kind of see it. Like I, I've probably seen pirate movies in worse quality <laughs> back in the days. But um, yeah, it's just a, a, a technical feat, isn't it? And also uh, you would need to get a floppy drive for your Raspberry Pi as well. I think I do remember the first time that I saw like, you know, full motion kind of video running on like a mega CD and the, you know, the CD TVs like CDXL format as well. If I'd have seen this back in the day, full movie, that would have blown my mind as a kid. You know, we take for granted like, you know, full HD streaming and all that today. But yeah, imagine this had come out like, you know, back in the early 90s. Well, it's a demake, isn't it? We talk about these demakes of games and this is a, a demake of a movie, which is a, a first from what we've seen. And of course, um, that can fit onto a, uh, a floppy disk. Do you remember the capacity of those, Ravi? A DOS f- formatted floppy? Oh, God, yeah, that was from, one of the from questions. The quiz. <laughs> uh, 1970, wasn't it? I don't know. I haven't got the question in front of me. <laughs> <laughs> Take your word for it. <laughs> so, yeah, I think that is awesome, though. And I, I must have, <laughs> it's really weird. So, I've actually been buying some, um, I've set my Philips CDI up in my home office recently. Um, and I've been going on eBay and buying video CDs to watch on it. So um, I'd ne- I've never actually seen Forrest Gump until the other day. You've never seen again. Forrest Gump? I'd never watched and it before. And now you've watched it on CDI. <laughs> I've, I've it still on got that, um, Four Weddings and a Funeral if you want it done <laughs> on, on VCD. <laughs> I have seen that before and I've got no desire to rewatch it. So uh, I'll leave Didn't, that one. <laughs> like once, I think it was on your stag doing leads, 
we came across like a proper random like secondhand shop and they had like loads of them. And I remember like they were all like a pound and you were like, you were buying them all down. They were like proper random, like Guns N' Roses live in Las Vegas and stuff like that. Can, can I can I just say that was the day after my stag do? The day after stag do sound lame. Like, like I, I went around Leeds buying video CDs. <laughs> <laughs> I just, just sit at home watching them. I'm a married man now. I've given up. <laughs> <laughs> but I think, you know, my point is that I would probably sit down and watch Shrek on this just because it's weird. <laughs> when I mean, I've got... comes I've, around next, you go, do you want to put Shrek on and give him a floppy disk? Not on the 65-inch 4K telly in the other room. Let's go watch it on the Raspberry Pi in the other room. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, technical things like that do always interest me. So I, I think good work on that. Keep it coming. Now, uh, Virtua Fighter, um, obviously that one of the, uh, well, I think the first 3D fighting game. Wasn't that a question in the quiz the other week as well? Yeah. Um, and obviously that's that's a franchise that's been massive. I do remember, was it Virtua Fighter 5 that came out around 10 years ago? Uh, I think so, Which, yeah, for 360, yeah. yeah. Well, I remember there's an arcade of it as well. Weirdly, the place I worked at the time, just before I moved here to Nottingham in London, I went in one day and they're doing like a promotion with the company I work for. And we had like five Virtua Fighter 5 arcade machines in the office. Yeah. So uh, yeah, not much work was getting done that week. But it looks like we are getting a new Virtua Fighter game a decade later. And this time, weirdly, they're going to be focusing on esports, which I think out of everything that you want to do right now, that would probably be quite low on your priority list. I, f- I can sort of see why they're doing it because of obviously esports is getting bigger and bigger, but I know virtual fight is not very big over here, but it's still pretty big in Japan. And uh, when I went there last year, um, you know, in all the arcades and stuff, it was all just fighting games. I don't know what games they were because I didn't really get much because it was so busy. I didn't really get much of a chance to play any of them. So I played like, I think I played a Final Fantasy fighting game, which was pretty cool. But yeah, vir- they still had Virtual Fighter going. You know, people, you know, sat there playing it and stuff. So I can see why they're doing it, but it kind of like segregates it to just Japan, really, I guess. Like if they're just like, that's the market. Like obviously it will still come out in, you know, the UK and America and everything. But for me, I, c- I can't, that doesn't excite me saying like, oh yeah, we're bringing out a new Virtual Fighter and we're making it just for, for esports kind of well not just for esports but we're aiming it at that kind of like project it just seems right now i mean how many esports events are going on in the world and we don't know when they're going to be back you know i mean it just seems a weird time to focus on that i guess they're just being optimistic or they're just going to do them online maybe because they've released a trailer Mm. and and if you guys have watched a trailer there's not really much in it it's just like pictures of people at esports events and then you see like the sega logo reflected in someone's eye and then right at the end yeah, it flashes up Virtua Fighter X esports and you know you, you kind of see you know the back of one of the characters um but there's not really much more to it so I, I but looking at it it doesn't look like it's very far in development or not enough that they want to show the world just yet yeah. but interestingly I mean there have been a few interviews with a Yu Suzuki who last year said that he's open to the idea of working with Sega again on a new Virtua Fighter game. And there's, there's kind of hints in these articles that actually he's involved in this. Okay. But he said he can't really talk about it at the moment, which, I, you know, that is going to be a big selling point, I think, if it's got the original designer involved again. Yeah, I think people will get hyped about that then, um, which is pretty cool. Um, I mean, what did he, he did Shenmue 3, didn't he? Um, yeah, well, he's been working on that recently. I mean, he's got his own company now, but he's he's still a consultant okay. with Sega, even though he doesn't work for them anymore. Okay. So um, it looks like he still works quite closely with them. So, um, yeah, I mean, it, it's a cool idea. It, it just the timing of it, I just thought, you know, <laughs> right in the middle of like a global pandemic, let's do something that's aimed at massive arena events. It just seemed a bit, yeah. <laughs> How many people can we bring? Ten. Okay, yeah. okay. All right, that's good. <laughs> 
Yeah, I mean, they'll bring it out in Japan first. I mean, it would be cool if they're kind of looking at this as an online kind of thing and getting yeah. people all around the world to play on it. I mean, that would be awesome if it was kind of a big, you know, online kind of esports game. Um, but, you know, Sega do seem quite innovative at the moment, so uh, maybe it, they'll surprise us. I think it's a little bit weird kind of trying to aim to be an esports title because I think, like, stuff's taken up as esports. Like, you know, StarCraft became a, a huge kind of title, uh, League yeah. of Legends after a long while, and it wasn't intentionally there as a esports title in the first place. So I think it's a bit of a a kind of a presumptuous move just going in and going, we're going to be esports. And it's like, all right, is anyone going to play? <laughs> yeah, that's right. You know, it depends yeah. on what the game's like. <laughs> yeah, maybe there'll be like some kind of integrated things that, you know, are going to make it a better experience for esport events. Or maybe they'll just tag the esports onto the title and, you know, hoping for the best. Okay, Sega Se- yeah. Fog. Save it. Sega Fog's going to save it all. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, it could be a selling point for Sega Fog. Uh, but, yeah, it's good to get a new virtual fight again, though. Hopefully we will get to play it and, uh, you know, if Yu Suzuki's involved, that, that kind of raises my uh, my hopes for it a bit. But we'll keep an eye on that story. And everything else we talked about, we put them all in our show notes every week to save you Googling around. You can find them all at theretrohour.com. Now, maybe you've still got... Maybe a couple of pounds from uh, your relatives at Christmas. Maybe maybe grandma sent you a couple of quid in a Christmas card and that uh, you want to spoil yourself. Or maybe your Christmas presents weren't all you hoped there would be. Anything, you know, it's about time I got something I really want. Well, why don't you treat yourself to this? Game Boy, the box art collection from our very good friends at Bitmap Books. Now, uh, this is hopefully going to be available for everyone um, next week. Now, hope, hoping for a release on uh, January 4th for this one, which is Monday. And if you are a Game Boy fan, this is an essential book in your collection. A real celebration of the artwork of Game Boy boxes, which I think has actually been a little bit underappreciated over the years. Yeah, man. Like, I think, you know, when you kind of look at these hand-drawn, like, you know, SNES and obviously Game Boy um, game boxes, they're just, they don't make them like they, they like they did like back then, you know, Xbox One and stuff like that. You've got some sort of CGI character on there. But this book, man, a few people have got their hands on it. I've seen it on Instagram today um, and it does look really, really nice. And, you know, there's games like Mario, Zelda, Donkey Kong, Metroid, you name it, like Great Gradius and Final Fantasy loads of games in there and what i also like about it is you always get like a little bit of information about it and it's nothing too strenuous it's not like pages and pages and pages about this game it's just a couple of paragraphs nice and easy for people like myself and it just the quality is just there as well it's just an awesome book yeah and i think that they're just some nice experiences mm. bit my books books aren't they something yeah. you can sit down with on the couch while, while tv's on in the background and just you know really enjoy like you said the quality of it, it all, they all just leap out the page yeah the way they make the games look and they've actually worked with some of the world's most renowned game boy collectors to pull together a really interesting selection of titles and what i love about this is it actually spans both the western and eastern tastes as well and there are obviously going to be games in here that we didn't get in the west and you can see screenshots of them and uh, get to look at what the games actually look like you know if you didn't experience them back in the day so if you're a collector there are different editions available as well including collector's editions silver and gold and there are exclusive cover illustrations from Superplay and rare legend will overturn an a2 poster a sturdy metal box and limited numbers as well but it's actually going to be available for everyone to get hopefully on monday you can get your copy from visiting their website at bitmapbooks.co.uk and of course it goes without saying you'll be really helping out the podcast by supporting our sponsors now, we're looking forward to Sunday, our first patrons hangout of 2021. 
I wonder how much weight we've all gained over Christmas. <laughs> no, my double chin man is horrendous at the moment. You just need to just have the camera chin. above the belly. Yeah. Mine's like a quad, <laughs> quad chin I think I've got now, yeah. Um, but yeah, this is always fun, isn't it? This is where we all get together and we just kind of geek out and we talk about retro games, we talk about movies. We've got a good little crew there. I mean, you know, it's kind of like just friends hanging out chatting casually about things that we're into really it's always a good laugh isn't it yeah man and we always kind of like share what retro bits we've picked up and stuff and i'm sure loads of people are going to have loads of nice things to show off from christmas oh, oh yeah absolutely. gonna see all the prezzies <laughs> yeah spoiler <laughs> alert mine's a uh, new sega sound controller <laughs> did you get one of those i did i did i forget the, i forget the brand but it was the one you know that came out about a year ago Really nice. Oh, one. nice. Yeah, I got one of them. Very nice. So, <laughs> I got uh, we'll go socks. camera. <laughs> <laughs> We're spoiling it now. We're spoiling it. <laughs> <laughs> Don't ruin the excitement, guys, by giving it all away early. Um, but yeah, we are going to be on camera. We know we just have a bit of a chat on a Sunday night for an hour or two. So, if you'd like to join us on there, it'd be great to see you. And um, you'll find the link on our Patreon. And of course, you do get our bonus second podcast that we do just for patrons the Retro Hour After Hours. And, uh, in the current one, we're talking about our favourite consoles. Now, actually, this one was quite a lot to do. We tried to guess each other's favourite systems and uh, in the main, got it horribly wrong. Yeah, it was really good, actually. And I think all of our top favourite systems were totally different to what we expected they would be. But also, guys, you can check out the new website as well because, um, you know, it's running a lot faster if you click on episodes as well, there's a really nice search function. So the whole page has every single episode of the Retro Hour on. So you can just scroll through and kind of find something that suits you. And of course, it's thanks to our patrons that we can keep that website running and pays for all our plugins and our hosting and everything, which is actually due now. Um, being that it is obviously the uh, start of the year and uh, this show's birthday. So um, anything we get through Patreon, all of that money we put back into the running of the show, it helps pay for the costs that we have, you know, running through all throughout the year. So we would really appreciate it if you back us on there. And of course, for doing that, you will find your place in the most prestigious high score table in the world of retro gaming, the Retro Hour Hall of Fame. Like this week, thank you to Jared May. Charlie Mostert. Gareth Qualley. Bernard Lucas. Anthony Hayden, who all made donations into the running of the show. And if you'd like to do the same, you'll find it on our website, our shiny new website at theretrohour.com. Right then, next, we are going to get some stories from Inside Sinclair, talking about machines like the ZX80, ZX81, the Spectrum, the QL, with our special guest, former Sinclair Managing Director Nigel Searle, is next on the Retro Hour podcast. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast and it's time to welcome on this week's very special guest now. We are really excited to get some inside stories about one of the most infamous British home computer companies of all time with the former managing director among many of the titles of Sinclair Research. Welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, Nigel Searle. Hello, Nigel. Hello. Fantastic to talk to you. Now, um, before we get into stories of your time at Sinclair, um, I was reading that you first saw a computer back in the 
mid-1960s as an undergraduate. Is that true? And do, do you remember what that was like and what your reaction was to it? Um, the first computer I used was as an undergraduate. I think the first real computer I ever saw um, was on a school trip to Jodrell Bank, the radio telescope just outside Manchester. But the first computer I used was uh, as an undergraduate. I went to Lancaster University in the very first year that it opened, and they had an IBM 1620, I believe. It had a massive amount of memory, 24K. Wow. Um, <laughs> and they'd had to construct a, an air-conditioned room for it, a very large room with a false floor under which cables connected the processor and the memory to a drum memory for mass storage and to a punch card machine. That was the first computer that I, I used because I was, a, I was taking maths, but I also had, did a minor in computer science. So did this kind of help drive your interest in electronics as a kid? You know, it's, I'd always been fascinated, and I didn't really know why. I still don't know why. I'd always been fascinated in miniature electronics. I remember saving money from my paper route to buy a very, very small reel-to-reel tape recorder. Um, anything that could run off a battery and was portable, even though I really had no use for such things, fascinated me. And I was also fascinated by computing in general. And I spent endless hours practicing mental arithmetic and things like that. <laughs> I was just interested in computing and interested in miniaturization rather than electronics as such. Well, you worked for a company called Cambridge Consultants before you went to Sinclair. What was your role there and what was that company doing? <laughs> that That's a pretty good story in itself. Cambridge Consultants had started around 1960 um, and its idea was to draw on the talents of Cambridge graduates, which I was not, and to make their brains available to industry. And in those days, it was sort of rather looked down upon for academics, people with PhDs, etc., to dirty their hands doing any real work outside the ivory tower. Um, but um, a guy called Tim Eilwart, who's sadly no longer with us, had started this company. And I met Tim through a friend of a friend of a friend, and I ended up going to work there in 1970. And um, they had three very prospering divisions in um, optics, mechanical engineering, and electric, electrical or electronic engineering, electrical probably in those days. And Tim said to me, oh, come and start a computer science department for us, division. So I sold my house. My then wife quit her job and got a new job. We were in Edinburgh, where I'd just completed a PhD. And we trekked off down to Cambridge, where it turned out Tim had been sort of um, ousted by a coup and was no longer in charge at Cambridge Consultants. And the folks who were had never heard of me and had no interest in a computer science department. <laughs> no nightmare. <laughs> so, um, however... 
they agreed to honor the commitment for a few months and see if I could drum up any business. And I got very, very lucky. And I did get a fairly large contract from a company that was controlling offshore natural gas platforms off the coast of Norfolk. They had a very, very old system based on a Honeywell computer and a enormous um, control board manufactured by Westinghouse that was as big as a billiard table. And they needed to add more platforms to it. And it basically wasn't expandable. And the Honeywell system couldn't handle um, more data. And um, we ended up replacing the whole thing with a DEC system, which was very, very cutting edge in those days. DEC was, became the dominant mini computer manufacturer in the 1970s. And they had monitors and they had something called deck tape for mass storage. And then um, after a couple of years at Cambridge Consultants, I decided to branch out on my own. I was very ambitious in those days. And the first job I got, having branched out on my own, was to do the microprogramming for a scientific calculator for Sinclair. Clive Sinclair had got this idea of doing a very inexpensive scientific calculator, meaning it would calculate trigonometric functions, exponential functions, etc., and do it all on a single chip. The competition in those days, the gold standard and the only really pocket-sized scientific calculator was a Hewlett-Packard calculator, which cost several hundred pounds, had five chips in it, and was a magnificent, magnificent piece of engineering. And, of course, Clive's idea was to produce something that had half the capacity but for a tenth of the price. And the only problem was that he wanted to do it on a single chip, which meant finding a chip that had enough ROM for the programming and enough RAM for the calculations so it could all be done on a single chip. We wound up using a chip from Texas Instruments, which they had designed for a 12-digit financial calculator. So it had quite a bit more ROM and RAM than the typical calculator back in those days. And we were able, I was able to shoehorn all the algorithms into a very small amount of memory. Um, I think, you know, something like what is 512 plus 256, 768 instructions of microprogramming. I always found Sinclair a fascinating company as well, because you mentioned when you were at Cambridge Consultants, I mean, a lot of the early computer scene in Cambridge was made up of university graduates. And obviously, Clive, not having been to university, did he seem different to those people? He wasn't very much, except that he was obviously very, very interested in the commercial aspects of work. Although, to be fair to Clive, the only reason he ever wanted to sell anything was to have money to finance his next even bigger project. The money was a means to an end. The end was invention. And he had no interest in selling anything that anybody else had invented. So he was a little different from the academics in that respect, but he certainly was no less smart or well-educated. He 
he was a very, very smart guy who very easily could have gone to university, chose not to. And he was um, widely read. I would say that even at the height of his busyness, he would spend half the day reading technical journals. Where, But he did strongly believe, based on his own example, that you didn't have to go to university to be very intelligent and very innovative. And he hired a number of people who did not go to university. Um, Jim Westwood um, was a prime example, super, super intelligent guy. Clive had hired him when he was about 15 or 16 years old, saw something in Jim that the academic system didn't see. And I think maybe even Chris Curry, who subsequently left and went off to form Acorn with Herman Hauser. I think Chris may not have been to university either. And I was, when I eventually joined Sinclair as an employee, as opposed to just being a consultant on that first project, I may have been the only person there with a graduate degree. And I don't think there were many with undergraduate degrees. But Clive didn't, you know, as long as you could do the job, Clive didn't look down on people who had degrees. Um, But he certainly didn't look up to them either, just because they had degrees. Well, were you based at St. Ives, uh, the mill initially? And uh, what was the atmosphere like in those early days? The old mill in St. Ives was a six-story building, um, very large building. Um, I don't remember if Clive was really using all of it, but I think he was spread out. He had a very, very large office of his own, and he had sort of key research people on the top floor. You could be running the accounting department for him or purchasing department or production. You would get nowhere near the top floor. <laughs> he surrounded himself with people who were who were doing the the um, the engineering and the the creative part of the work as he saw it. Well, in fairness, most of us probably did as well. I was up on the top floor. There was a very slow freight elevator, and Clive was far too impatient to use that. And he always, when he arrived at work, he went out for lunch to a local greasy spoon, came back from lunch. He always raced up the stairs, taking them two at a time, And um, we used to joke that he'd never stopped at any of the other floors. (laughs) (laughs) They didn't exist for him. I mean, I'm not not saying he wasn't a kind person and considerate of his employees and grateful to them, but he wasn't interested in what they did. If they were in a support role in accounting or purchasing or whatever, they were just, you know, uh, a necessity that one had to have to be in business, but they, he, he had no real interest in those functions. So he raced up the stairs to the sixth floor and raced back down again. And I don't remember. He, I'm sure occasionally he needed to talk to someone, but they would normally be summoned up to the top floor. And that included sales and marketing. I mean, Clive was very, very interested in the marketing in terms of what our advertisements looked like and things like that. Um, but then on a day-to-day basis, he had very little interaction with with sales and marketing. 
I find it interesting you mentioned working alongside Chris Curry um, mm. before he started Acorn. I mean, what was kind of um, Chris's working relationship like at Sinclair then? Did he? So, I mean, we, we've seen documentaries where it always was made out he was a bit frustrated and Clive didn't always agree with him. That's why he started Acorn. How, how was that from your perspective? Well, I, I think that's true. In the earlier years, and I'm to 1972 um, onward, Chris seemed quite content working there. And he worked on a variety of projects, some of the early calculators. But even back in the early 70s, Chris was working on rudimentary electric vehicles. But then I think Sinclair Radionics, the calculator company, eventually effectively went broke. And Chris had met Herman Hauser, who is a an impressively smart people, one of the smartest people I've ever met and very, very smart about business. And I think Herman possibly um, persuaded Chris that um, there were alternatives to Clive Sinclair <laughs> and that with Clive, as I found out in the calculator business and then the computer home computer business, it was a real roller coaster. You know, you'd go up to the highest highs and come crashing down to the very bottom again. Um, because Clive only wanted to make money for his next project, was bigger and better. And in a way, I would characterize Clive as a guy who was not interested in putting a bet on a horse race unless it, he put everything on it. It just wasn't exciting to him if he could afford to lose. And that made for very exciting times, but not for stability in the long run. You know, there were other people who knew Chris better than I did, although, you know, I've known him fairly well over many, many years. And he could probably obviously answer the question more accurately. But I got the impression that Chris just saw the possibility of greener grass with Herman on the other side, rather than that he was especially disenchanted with Clive. And I think they would, they, well, they did remain good friends. I had come over to the States in 1974, and I didn't go back to England until 1982. Um, and Clive and Chris were still pretty friendly then. It was only when Clive saw Acorn as a real rival to Sinclair, after they got the BBC contract, that the rivalry between them became perhaps a little less than friendly but it was more about the rivalry between the companies than between the people on the famous occasion when they had a a bit of a fisticuffs in the baron of beef pub or whatever it was called in cambridge that was a few days before christmas when sinclair had had its christmas party which was a a very boozy affair. And so I doubt that either of them was totally sober on that occasion. <laughs> and, and I think they, I don't know if they remain friends after that. Um, I would see them occasionally in Cambridge. Clive and I would be out having a drink on a Friday evening and Chris would come into the same pub and, and they'd get into a niggly little argument about something. But, but I, I think they were really good friends always. Well, heading back to those early days, what were your initial responsibilities at Sinclair? Well, at Sinclair Radionics with calculators, um, I was responsible for some new product development where any sort of, um, yeah, 
I mean, unless we, it was just a simple four-function calculator, most basic ones, the scientific and the programmable calculators, I was responsible for the development of those. And then I moved to the States. I'd been working on projects for Sinclair with a few different American semiconductor manufacturers, Texas Instruments I mentioned before, National Semiconductor in California. This is about 1974, mid-70s. I decided I wanted to live in California. So Clive agreed to make that possible, and I would continue to be responsible for um, development of new calculators. It wasn't as simple as it is nowadays because communications were a little more difficult. I don't think we'd even really got started with fax machines. But anyway, I hadn't been in California for very long when Clive made me an offer I couldn't refuse to move to New York and to be responsible for Sinclair's U.S. subsidiary. He, the company had a subsidiary that was doing calculator sales in the States, but it was being run on Clive's behalf by people in New York who were not direct employees. And it wasn't going very well financially. They were making a lot more money than Sinclair was. So I got to be the bad guy who moved to New York and fired everybody and started again from scratch. And there I was no longer involved in product development. I was running what was basically uh, a sales and marketing operation in North America, importing calculators. Um, we got involved with a couple of other Sinclair products. We had a pocket multimeter, which we did an OEM deal with Radio Shack for. Um, they bought a lot under their name. Um, and it's sort of exploring future possibilities here in the States. I did that for a couple of years until Sinclair Radionics effectively went broke. It was a few years later when I rejoined the new Sinclair that was in the home computer business. Well, what was it like trying to promote the calculator range in the US? I mean, obviously you're going up against companies like HP and um, Texas, Texas Instruments, of course, had their own range of calculators. Was, was it fierce competition? Oh, absolutely. But what we, when I took things over, they were trying to sell through the big department stores, the mass merchandisers, etc. And it was very, very difficult. You know, calculators in those days would retail for $39. And then suddenly in 1973, 74, 75, you'd turn around and they were retailing for $19. And the next minute they were retailing for $9. And if you had any inventory, any stock at a big department store, they expected you to credit them at a new reduced wholesale price for product they'd already bought for you, bought from you. It's very, very cutthroat business. So, of course, it was perfect ground for us to revert to the well-tried Sinclair method of selling by mail order. And we did very well, and we especially did well when we started selling calculators and we had a wrist calculator. We sold them in kit form. And there was a huge untapped market over here for people who wanted to tinker and build things for themselves. Um, there was a chain of stores in those days called Heathkit that sold all sorts of electronics you could build for yourself. 
Um, but otherwise, there was very little opposite competition, and we sold calculators. We ran huge ads in Popular Electronics magazine, um, even Scientific American magazine. And we were selling as many, if not more, kits than we were the finished product. Beauty of the kit was, and this is typical Clive Sinclair genius, you don't incur the labor costs of making it yourself. The person who puts it together doesn't necessarily want the finished product. They just want the fun of building it. So if it doesn't work properly when they finish building it, they put it away in a drawer and they think, oh, I'll come back to it. I must have done something wrong. Right. <laughs> so ironically, we hardly ever got any returns on the kits. They were, and, you know, if, if it didn't work, well, they didn't really need the product anyway. They'd done it for the fun and the challenge of building it. Um, so that distinguished us somewhat from the mainstream guys from the Texas Instruments and Bomar was very big in those days uh, and the other guys. But, you know, although a lot happened, it happened in a very short time because by 1976, Sinclair was effectively broke. The National Enterprise Board had got involved. Um, but um, things came to a crashing halt. Well, another product that was also sold in kit form or assembled and, and was a big Sinclair product in the mid-70s was the Black Watch. I mean, were you involved in that product and do you have any memories well, the, of that? The, the Black Watch was an absolute classic because I have a lot of good things to say about Clive Sinclair, but I didn't realize it at the time because I was more of a programmer, abstract sort of guy, but I realized later what Clive never properly had was production engineering. He would get a prototype to work, or some of his people would get a prototype to work based on an idea he'd have. And he'd say, okay, let's flip the switch. Let's make millions of them. Well, just because you can make a prototype work doesn't mean you've got something that is going to be manufacturable in volume easily. Um, I think the micro drive was an absolute classic case of that later on. The black watch was an example of that. That thing was really barely buildable. After it was built, um, after it was made, it turned out that it kept getting zapped by static electricity. So a shield had to be, a flexible foil shield had to be designed to go inside the case, which was already creme tight. And it was very, very difficult to build it on a production line. So uh, I don't mean to sound too cynical about this because the people who bought it would tell you they were very, very happy with it. But it was the perfect product to sell in kit form. And the first ad we ran for that, I believe in Popular Electronics, a full-page ad, which probably in those days cost three or $4,000, sold a quarter of a million dollars worth of watch kits, black watch kits, 12,000 of them at $24.95 or $29.95. I mean, abs now the next ad that we ran a couple of months later didn't sell nearly as many, although it was hugely profitable. But there was within the kit building market this huge pent-up demand because they'd never had a chance to build a digital watch before. And so that first ad, I will never forget, was just all-time success. 
Well, there were kind of high hopes for the watch as well. And at that price point, it, it made it affordable. Do you think like the bad press uh, about the problems affected the sales of it later on? Oh, yeah. I mean, it was a... I don't know that the manufacturing problems ever got completely sorted out. Um, And to tell you the truth, I can't remember if we ever sold any in non-kit form in the States, because by the time... We always got the products later. Until the production in England of any new product was satisfying the demand in England, we didn't get any. So later on in computer business, we didn't get the ZX80 until 1981. We didn't get the ZX81 until 1982. We were a full year behind. So I think by the time we might have got the Black Watch, um, it was pretty apparent that it was it was not ready for retail sale as a finished product. I think we probably only sold it as a kit. When you mentioned about the US division running out of money, and I mean, I read that you left in 1977 only to rejoin a couple of years later. What kind of happened there then? Well, 1976, after the calculator business, which was called Sinclair Radionics, went bust, Chris Curry went off and did his own thing. A new company was formed that Clyde was involved in that sold the MK14, I think it was. Not sure if you're familiar with that. But anyway, um, nothing much really happened until in, I went off and did my own thing over here in the States. Very late 1979, Clive said that he was on his way to Las Vegas to the Consumer Electronics Show. Didn't have a booth or anything, wasn't exhibiting anything, but he was going to go there and see what was happening. I was living in Boston and he said, why don't you you know, get on a plane and meet me out there in Vegas. And I I remember I just had terrible case of very, very bad winter cold or flu, and I just didn't feel up to it. So I didn't go. And he said, but will you make, will you be okay, feel up to meeting with me if I stop in Boston on the way back? So he stopped on the way back and he showed me the ZX-80 which was not yet in production, but it was just about ready to go into production. And um, I think I met him down in Boston one evening. He was staying across the river from Boston in Cambridge. Met him over there in Cambridge, spent the evening talking about it. And by the next morning, we decided that I would rejoin or join the new Sinclair company. I would set up an office in Boston, would import the ZX-80s and sell them here in the States. And by noon, I wasn't actually living in Boston. I was living north of Boston quite a bit, too far to commute on an everyday basis. But by the next morning, I had rented myself an apartment in Boston. We had rented an office in Boston. We registered a company in Massachusetts all before lunchtime. Wow. (laughs) In those days, the contrast between the ease with which you could do business in the States and do business in Britain, there was still quite a gap. I mean, I know that later it changed substantially, but, um, you know, you could order telephone lines in the morning and get them installed in the afternoon. And so that was how I got involved again. 
And of course, there was no production of the ZX-80 at that time. And in any case, we were going to have to get FCC approval for it over here for RF radiation, which can require design changes and take some time. But that was all part of my, my initial duties to get everything ready for the importation of the ZX-80. Well, what were your initial impressions of the ZX-80? Well, it was obviously a very rudimentary device, and I thought that it was going to appeal to people who wanted to, you know, play around with it, do a little bit of coding and so on and so forth. But quite honestly, back in those days, there wasn't an awful lot more that you could do with the computers that were on the market. I had bought one of the very first Radio Shack TRS-80s, I think in 1978, and I was so excited to have it. It was $1,000, which was a huge amount of money in those days. It had non-integer basic. It had 4K of memory. You used a regular cassette tape recorder for storage. And as excited as I was to have it, there wasn't really very much you could do with it that was useful. I mean, a few people did, you know, um, wrote accounting packages or bookkeeping packages and did some useful things with them. But by and large, it was just something that was, if you were into programming, it was just a lot of fun to have. Well, obviously, the Sinclair computer range really started to hit its stride with the ZX81. I mean, who are you aiming these machines at initially? You mentioned that hobbyist market there, and it kind of felt to me like, you know, they were kind of aimed at the same people that would build radios and were into electronics. But obviously, that market started to change when kids started getting them for games and that kind of thing. Did it, it kind of change? We did a promotion with American Express here in the States. This was a very big deal in those days. And if you could get your foot in the door with American Express, it could lead to a lot of volume because every month they were mailing out. People weren't paying their credit card bills online. They got them in the mail, in the post. And they were mailing out millions of credit card statements every month. And in that credit card statement, you would get special offers. And they were tied into the credit card in that if you bought a home computer for $600 and charged it to your American Express card, you could pay it off with no interest over six months, let's say. So we got the ZX81 into American Express into a test. It didn't do terribly well in the test but they believed that they knew why it didn't and how to fix it. And one of the fixes was to redo the brochure that came with it. It wasn't a little business envelope. It was a large envelope that had a beautiful, glossy brochure. They said, we're going to take this guy out of the picture, this guy who looks like a student or somebody. We're going to replace him with a mother, a father, and a child, all sitting down on the, on the living room carpet, sitting around the computer hooked up to the TV. Because our analysis of the people who have bought this and who then didn't return it and are happy with it, they're all family people. So we made that change, and I think we sold something like 44,000 computers. American Express was a huge 
retailing force. It came with a lot of credibility. Um, and they saw, their advertising people saw the appeal to the family. And then, of course, when game software started getting written for the ZX81, that expanded the market enormously. And that was something that Clive really wasn't interested in. He didn't want to be in the games business. I remember when I told him that for one of the Christmases, probably Christmas 73 maybe, we were going to package the Spectrum in a large box with, I think it was six different games on cassette tape. And he, ah, it won't make any difference. He said, won't make any difference. What do you want to do that for? I said, Clive, we've got to do something. We've got to freshen the product in some way or other. And we can negotiate deals with companies like Scion who will give us one cassette for next to nothing because if people like that game, they'll buy other Scion games. So we were going to have half a dozen games, did have half a dozen games from half a dozen different manufacturers, uh, producers of games. And, of course, it did incredibly well. The Spectrum was the... Although it was never designed to be a games computer, Clive never wanted it to be a games computer. He had no interest in it being a games computer, but but that's where most of its success lay. I always got that impression as well, because, I mean, there's that famous scene in Micro Men where he said, you know, he didn't want to be known for Jet Set Willy. I mean, was it kind of a bit of a frustration that these machines were selling by the bucket load to kids who wanted to play games, but he wanted to be seen as a serious computer company, do you think? Yes, I mean, you, you see, Clive... Clive cut corners in the best possible way. He took a product like the Hewlett-Packard Scientific Calculator and said, most people can't afford whatever it was, 395 pounds or something, 50 years ago, huge amount of money. Most people can't afford that, but they'd accept, you know, three-digit, four-digit accuracy. That's all they get from their slide rule, if that. They'd accept less accuracy if they could buy it for whatever it was, 69 quid, later on a lot less. And about the scientific calculator, he was absolutely right, because it was engineers and people who were buying it. It was no fun to play with. You did have to have a use with But later on, when he made similar calculations, balancing cost against capability, what it ended up doing was to driving the product down into the recreational area whether it was the ZX80, 81, or even the Spectrum, people who seriously needed a powerful computer could afford to buy something more powerful. They didn't need to buy the cheapest one on the market. So the cheapest one on the market became the the plaything, and that was great for people who wanted to play. And, of course, he made the same trade-off when it came to the first electric vehicle, that he did, the C5. If he had understood, that would be a terrific vehicle for recreational purposes. I can't tell you how many people down here in Florida ride three-wheel recumbent bicycles or tricycles. They lie very, very low on them. And nowadays, half of them have got an electric motor attached to them. So if you've ridden 15 miles with the wind behind you and you turn from home and you need a little help, you've got an electric motor. The C5 could, I can't claim that I saw it at the time, but certainly in retrospect, could have had a great market as a recreational thing. But Clive was 
believed that people could be persuaded to commute to the nearest railway station in it. And of course, it never found that market because most people just felt it was too dangerous to be on the road. Well, how did the partnership with Timex come about and why were they needed? Oh, well, I think the ZX80 was never made in huge numbers and it was made locally in Cambridgeshire somewhere. The ZX81, I think probably was as well, but the volume that we needed, the sales took off astronomically and it obviously needed someone who was um, more experienced. And although most people didn't know it, Timex was doing a lot of subcontract manufacturing. It was manufacturing keyboards for IBM, for example, and charging them about £60 each. Very high-quality keyboard, of course, but um, you know, not for, not for personal computers, um, but for mainframes uh, where the operator would sit and use the keyboard. So Timex had, and I don't know what else they were, they got involved in a 3D camera with a company called Nimslow. So they had a a facility up in Dundee that was no longer needed for making watches. Timex wasn't. Timex almost missed the boat on digital watches, and so for a while before it caught up, got up to speed in digital watches, losing sales in analog watches, and it had a lot of spare manufacturing capacity. And so their Dundee facility had some experience with the electronic assembly, with the IBM keyboards, and they may have been doing other products, but I don't remember. And so somehow or other, Clive and um, Fred Olson, who is the the owner of Timex and of many more things like the Olson shipping line and the Olson oil drilling platforms, enormously wealthy guy who is, I believe, still alive and still chairman of the company. He and, he and Clive somehow or other got together and um, ended up having the ZX81s manufactured in Dundee. And eventually they produced well over a million so I, I started the North American operation to sell the ZX80, ZX81 in North America. And we did okay in that, but it became a very tough business in 1982, as early as 82. You'd basically got TI, Atari, Commodore, and Sinclair not directly, Sinclair was not directly competing, but those four companies between them probably overestimated the size of the market by a factor of two, and each of them individually overestimated their share of the market by a factor of two. So collectively, they produced four times as many computers as there was a market for. And you couldn't just shift the your surplus production somewhere else in the world because each computer was made to the electrical standards, the voltage requirements, etc., um, power supply requirements of the country it was manufactured for. And manufacturing lead times were incredibly long. So there was a huge glut of computers. And Timex was always looking for new opportunities to diversify out of watches. And they said, um, you know, why don't we talk about us retailing? At that time, Timex products were, they boasted, were sold in more shops and retail outlets than any other product 
with the possible exception of Gillette razors and blades. Those were the two most widely distributed products in North America. They said, so, you know, even if we only sold one computer per outlet per month, it would add up to a heck of a lot, many tens of thousands of outlets. And so they got involved and we did negotiate a deal for them to retail products in the States. But then they wanted to put the Timex name on and they thought they had some clever ideas about redesigning the products which they probably did, but they lost a lot of valuable time. And by the time they were really ready to ship their product with their name on, with redesigns to have more memory and who knows what else, um, the market had just about completely collapsed here in the States. And, um, and I went, but in England... They were still going gangbusters because Commodore, Atari, and TI were not the competitors they were over here. So I went back to England in 82 to take over the day-to-day running of the computer business just around the time that we introduced the Spectrum. Well, when the Spectrum was launched, um, how did you approach that then and how did you differentiate it from the... ZX81, because obviously it was a much more powerful machine having color as well. Absolutely. Um, And I don't remember whether there was any retail distribution of the ZX81. I think there was. Clive had been somewhat opposed to the retail distribution of the ZX81. He just didn't like the um, being dependent on anyone else if it was possible to avoid it. But WH Smith persuaded Sinclair and I to sell the ZX81. And that may have happened after I got involved. It may have been me that they persuaded. It may have been Clive before I arrived back in England. I honestly don't know. But from then on, it was always a battle with the retailers like WH Smith. They wanted to get the product as quickly as possible. We wanted to maximize profits by selling at full retail price directly through mail order for as long as possible. After I got back to England in 82, started marketing the Spectrum, well, was involved in the final development of the Spectrum, including naming it and everything. We had a hybrid of retail and um, mail order business, which is always difficult to balance, but we were sort of strong enough in the market to have it our way. And the other thing that happened around that time was that apart from our deal with Timex in North America, we had a very, very small export business. Clive's father, Bill Sinclair, lovely old guy, he had quite a bit of export experience. So Clive had let Bill run our the company's export business. And we had a few sales in France and a few sales somewhere else. But it was obvious there was massive demand. And so we we bought Bill out of his export business very generously. And we started setting up either subsidiaries of Sinclair or exclusive distributorships all over the world. And in I think it was 1984 when we had a major 
um, get-together of all the distributors around the world coming to England for a conference, we were distributing in over 50 countries. So that was another huge area of expansion, getting into retail with people like W.H. Smith and Dixon's and who knows who else, but also um, distributing really anywhere in the world that was interested. I, I even made a couple of trips to China to try and set something up there, although it, it never came to anything. Well, how did you go about taking on machines like the Commodore 64 and persuading people that it was a better system? I never really felt that we were in competition with those people, those companies in Europe. We were less expensive and we were we were good enough for the games market that we had found. And I'm I'm not sure, you know, we, we had a large enough market share that we seemed to be able to hold on to. I guess, you know, we didn't ignore what everyone else was doing completely. And I think one year, finally, we, we put a, a real keyboard on the spectrum instead of a rubber membrane keyboard. Because what was the one thing that everyone else had that we didn't have was actual individual moving keys. And we did that thing of packaging the spectrum with a with software. But by that time, our focus on new products was very, very much on the QL. And of course, you know, that turned out to be another thing where Clive was desperately trying to develop a product that would appeal to more serious-minded people and games players. And I don't mean to suggest that he didn't have the support of people within the company, including myself, um, because it was still relatively early on. The PC with an Intel chip and a Microsoft operating system had not gotten firmly, irrevocably established, um, as Apple was beginning to prove, and as we thought we could begin to prove, that there was a market for something, something else than a PC clone. but what we failed to do was to realize that that market would pay whatever it took for a better quality product that wasn't full of compromises. And clearly the micro drive was a major compromise. Well, I know that you were very hands-on with the launch of the QL, and there's actually a, a video on YouTube of you launching the QL. Um, I don't know if you've seen that, but it's about 90 minutes long, and I'll put that in our show notes if people want to watch it. I mean, what was your role in the development of the QL, and what were the, the aims of that project from your perspective? Well, um, we had a, a meeting that involved Clive every week at the end of the week to discuss the where we were with the QL, but um, most of the people, so that set the, set the course um, and modifications were being made all the time. As originally conceived, the QL was not only going to have the micro drive built in for storage, it was also going to have the flat screen TV built in for display purposes which um, I'm not sure whether it helped it that it didn't or would have helped it if it did. 
um, because that was a very, very small screen. It was about the size of the screen in the original Osborne computer. I don't know if you're familiar with that. Yeah. Um, a 26-pound um, portable computer with, um, I think it had two floppy drives in it. It certainly had one. I think it had two, um, but a tiny screen. So the QL was, you know, getting redesigned as it went along. And I was, I guess, primarily my involvement was to make sure that what we'd agreed we would do each week at the development meeting got done during the next week. Clive was based down in London by this time. He wasn't involved in day-to-day running of the business. He'd got his meta lab where he was doing everything that wasn't computers. He was doing some semiconductor work there. He was doing um, the electric vehicle that became the C5 and other stuff. Um, And I was basically in charge of day-to-day stuff. So although I didn't dictate what the QL was going to be, Clive did have the final say over that. Um, I was the one then responsible for making sure the week's work got done by the next week. I read that you'd uh, convinced Clive to use the Motorola 68K instead of Z80. Um, It was something you later regretted. Is there any truth in that? (laughs) Um, You know, I certainly was a supporter of using the Motorola chip. And it was a compromise between what Apple was using, which was the full 68 thousand or whatever and this had an 8-bit bus so it was a squeezed down version as i recall but of course it met clive's requirements for being low cost when the ql was not successful i think that clive may have indulged in a in a spasm of um trying to blame other people for it not succeeding. <laughs> and if he chose to blame me for having talked him into the Motorola, well, that, that's fine. Clive and I were friends for a very, very long time, and we never fell out, although we eventually lost touch. Clive was very, very ill a number of years ago, and since that illness, he seemed to have lost touch with everybody. But um, and it, in it, And he may have wanted to believe that you could run a full-powered business computer off a, a Z80 processor. But I, I find it difficult to believe that he really thought that. You know, what I find interesting is, you know, the QL was, it was a powerful machine for its price range. And obviously you had the, the problems like the microdrive. And I know that the early models of the QL had the, you know, half of the firmware on an external cartridge. So that, that kind of got a bit of a bad reputation. But then later on, we saw machines like the, the Amstrad word processors that were very simplistic machines. Do you think maybe the QL would have had more luck if it was kind of aimed purely at one task like that in hindsight? Well, yeah. I, Clive was very, very good at executing what he knew people wanted. Clearly, in the early 70s, people wanted pocket calculators, and there was no dispute about what they were going to do. They had to add, subtract, multiply, divide, and they had to have a memory. And that was it. So you didn't have to understand the market terribly well to know what people wanted. When it came to the scientific calculator, 
Clive, I've never seen Clive use a calculator or a computer or ride a bicycle. He's always used a slide rule. And insofar as he said, oh, well, I know what slide rule users want, and they don't need the eight-digit precision that the Hewlett-Packard Scientific Calculator gives them. They need two, three-digit precision. Let's give them a calculator that does that. He was absolutely right. But when it came to the computers, I don't think that Clive, and maybe I didn't either, maybe nobody really did, but Clive didn't really understand and study what people wanted to do with computers. His thinking went as far as, let's make something that can run basic. And that was enough for the ZX80, the ZX81. But the Spectrum's success was largely based on games, which Clive didn't foresee and didn't understand. And again, I'm not saying that, that I did or anyone else at Sinclair did. And the QL... He, he would study, he would read these technical journals and everything else, but he never really studied the, what the user wanted, what the market was. He would intuit that as best he could. But, for example, the, the suite of programs that Scion developed for the QL, which we worked with them to develop and have ready on the same time scale, which was basically an integrated suite of a database word processor, spreadsheet, and something else. You know, that concept was one that was fairly new in those days and which I had seen implemented by Digital Research, who had developed the CPM operating system. But, but no one else, to the best of my knowledge, had a suite of programs that were fully integrated, that all had the same user interface. Even when Apple came out with the Macintosh and they had MacWrite and uh, MacDraw and so on, those programs were really quite separate, standalone applications. And, um, and so having been a computer user myself, I'd used an Apple II with various add-ons to try and run some business functions. I'd even used an Osborne to run some business functions. I think I had a little bit of insight into what people might want to do with the QL. And I'm not sure that Clive ever did. In the same way that I'm not sure he ever had any real insight into what people might want to do with the C5. I, I think he had confidence there was a market but unlike his electronics work and his inventions, which were based on detailed, in-depth, very broad knowledge of what was happening in the electronics world, in the semiconductor world, in, the, in displays and so on, he didn't have that same sort of insight into what users wanted to do with his products. I think he would have said that he did, but he would have had to admit that if he did, it wasn't through any study. It was just through intuition. So I don't mean that to sound critical. I'm not saying that any of us at Sinclair were any more insightful about it. But that wasn't, that wasn't Clive's strength. You take a guy like Alan Sugar, and probably he was the absolute mirror image of Clive. He didn't care how you got to the product as long as it did what people wanted it to do. Well, when did the talk of an Amstrad buyout 
first start happening then? And what was the story there from your perspective? Uh, very little, really, um, from my perspective. Early 1985, well, actually in 84, in 84, I could see the writing on the wall for Sinclair. When I'd gone to work for the computer company, I said to Clive, I don't want this to be like the calculator business all over again. And he said, well, what do you think went wrong with the calculator business? I said, well, Clive, and we were good enough friends. We were very, very good friends for a long time. Might even have described one another as one another's best friends. I certainly regarded him as my best friend. So I was able to say to him, Clive, what went wrong in the calculator business was that you were only interested in manufacturing products that you had invented. So when we needed to have liquid crystal displays, you still insisted on using LED displays. You thought you had some clever tricks to squeeze more out of them and make them even cheaper than, than LCDs, but LCDs overtook us. And they were much better in every way. And people didn't want LEDs. They saw LEDs as old-fashioned. And I don't want to see us make that mistake again. So Clive said, well, what does that mean? I said, well, what it means is that if somebody brings us some really great technology, we need to use it. By all means, invent our own products, develop our own products, but don't have a not-invented-here mindset. Clive said, okay. I understand that's the way it will be. But of course, when it came to the crunch, it wasn't. In the very early days of developing the QL, Sony came to us and showed us a very early prototype of the first um, three-inch, was it three-inch, three-and-a-half-inch um, floppy disk? Yeah. Um, where the standard up to then had been the five-and-a-quarter or whatever. So they showed us that disk, and it was absolutely perfect for the QL. But of course, it was too expensive. But if we talked to them about the sort of volumes we hoped to achieve, the price would probably have come down, but Clive wouldn't even talk to them. Later on, a Japanese contact, a guy called Kei Nishi, who had been a vice president of Microsoft and then went back to Japan to, to run Japan, Microsoft Japan. Kei was a good, not a good friend, but he was someone I knew quite well. He, came, he showed me the first ever laptop computer running Windows that I'd ever seen. And he said, we could make these for you, put the Sinclair name on, you know, and you would sell millions of them in Europe. And um, he was right, of course. And I realized he was right. And it fit the Sinclair image to have a compact product like a laptop. And I talked to Clive about it. And I persuaded Clive, but... When it actually came to the crunch, he um, he found reasons not to do it. Well, it was a really interesting time as well because um, Clive actually received the knighthood in 1983 and uh, yeah. Ma Margaret Thatcher actually presented the ZX Spectrum as like a symbol of the British computer industry. Yeah. Um, you kind of uh, must have been involved with all of that excitement at the time. What was the atmosphere like and uh, people, you know, kind of saw Clive as the quintessential british inventor at the oh, time oh absolutely you know he was the guardian's businessman of the year um clive didn't like the i quite often said to clive would you like to meet so-and-so he never had any interest 
he Clive set up a meeting with Bill Cotton, who was the director general of BBC Television or the controller of BBC Television, because he wanted to go and give him an earful about not choosing Sinclair Computers to be the BBC computer. Clive got a meeting with him on the strength of who he was. But then Clive realized, well, I'm not interested in meeting Bill Cotton because Clive was only interested in meeting technical sort of people. Clive's secretary calls me up one afternoon and says, can you be in London? I was in Cambridge. Can you be down in London by 7.30 tomorrow morning? Bill Cotton's agreed to meet Clive, but he can only do it at 7.30 in the morning at BBC Television Centre. And Clive suddenly decided he doesn't want to go. Can you go instead? So off I go. Bill Cotton had the most enormous penthouse suite at the old BBC Television Centre. And I obviously had explained to his secretary when I arrived what I was doing there. And it had been explained to Bill. And Bill looked at me as if I was a piece of dog dirt he'd found on the bottom of his shoe. <laughs> <laughs> and that happened, that happened with other people, other well-known people that Clive would agree to meet or even in some cases persuade them to meet him, but then he'd lose interest. But if you could set up a meeting, as a friend of mine did, with Edwin Land of Polaroid, Clive chatted away to Edwin Land for about two hours, you know, and, um, and a, a number of other people, Nolan Bushnell, founder of Atari. He and Clive had a real little love affair. Um, I was at a consumer electronics show in about 1987, and I think they, they spent the entire three days together meeting at breakfast and dinner every day. He loved people like that who were inventive and didn't really have much time for anyone else. So when he was made a knight, he was a bit embarrassed about it. He, I remember him having, I, I lived in Cambridge and he's, he was living in London, but he still had a rather magnificent house in Cambridge that he stayed in on the weekend. So when I heard about the knighthood, I, um, I live quite close to him, and I walked over to his house on a Sunday morning to congratulate him, and he was very embarrassed about it all. He was afraid people would think that he was a sellout or something. But, um, no, he, he represented a degree of entrepreneurship that Britain had not seen very much of until then. Branson was around, I guess, but there were very, very few people who had been successful entrepreneurs. Well, Nigel, we could talk to you for hours. You know, your stories about your time at Sinclair have just been so interesting. When I was researching you, actually, I found an interview that you did in 1982. And I don't know if you remember doing this. This was in a Sinclair User Christmas Edition, 1982, where you, um, you predicted the personal computer of the future will fit in your pocket... It will be as small as a credit card. There will be no keyboard. You'll be able to communicate with it by speaking to it. It will also serve as a portable telephone, enabling you to communicate with any other computer owner anywhere in the world. That was a pretty accurate prediction on your part, I think. Yeah, I, I guess that you'd seen that article because it was, I wrote that article in 1982, and I yeah. said it's 18 years since I first 
saw or used a computer, referring to the one in 1964 when I was an undergraduate. And in 18 years from now, it will be the year 2000. So it seemed like a good time to be doing a prediction. We had also coined a slogan that we ran in ads for our for the ZX81, I think, saying within a day you'll be talking to it like a friend. So the whole concept of the voice being a primary means of communication, of talking to it. Um, yeah, I've, uh, I have thought about that article, and I think I may have a copy of it somewhere. Um, but I wouldn't say I was – I think if you'd asked a lot of people who were working in the business at that time um, – they probably would have said something similar. I think the crazy thing that none of us got right, we all knew about Moore's law, you know, that the number of transistors on a chip is going to double at least at least double every 18 months. And so you project that forward and you say, oh, well, in 30 years' time, it's going to be, you know, 10 million times what it is today or whatever the number is. But I don't think many people, and I certainly wasn't one of them, really absorbed what having 10 million times the power could do for you. I, I just realized today I needed to buy a, a USB thumb drive memory and I could get a pack of 10 one gig thumb drives for $20. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, and, but it was what it would do for the applications that, I don't know that anybody really grasped because a lot of what we regard as artificial intelligence is just raw, brute computing power. If you give something enough computing power, you know, it can play chess very well and it can do a lot of other things very well, but it's not really artificial intelligence. It's maybe machine intelligence and it's, it's been almost all of it's been made possible, not by brilliant insights, but by sheer brute computing power. Well, Nigel, I know you're still based in America. What, what are you up to these days then? What's kind of your life now? Uh, I've been retired for quite a long time now. I was always very good at doing two things. I was very good at working about 100, 100 hours a week, sometimes 120. And I've always been very good at doing nothing. And for the last 11 years, I've been practicing the latter. Well-deserved by the sounds of it, though. <laughs> <laughs> I enjoy it, and I made myself a promise when I retired 11 years ago that I wasn't going to be tempted back into doing anything. Um, and I've, I've, well, not too many people have come along to tempt me. Um, but um, I, I live in Florida. I love the climate. I love the convenience of life. I, I, miss, the beer, I miss the beer in England, and I miss the hills. Um, but uh, apart from that, this is my home now and um, I do as little as possible. Well, glad to hear that you're taking it easy and thank you so much for coming on and uh, sharing your stories about those incredible days. And, uh, you know, for, for all of us that grew up using those machines, um, just a big thank you to the incredible work that you did back then as well. Uh, you're very, very welcome. Very welcome. Very welcome.